Hello everybody, you are listening to The First Draft Collective, a podcast for discussing and creating stories. Uh, I am your host Paul, uh, amateur writer, and as always is my partner in this endeavour, Thorn Wild. Hello. Also amateur writer, but slightly more professional than I am. Last week we dealt with antagonists, part one of dealing with antagonists, and basically all we did was talk about them and uh, the general sort of types of antagonists that you get in media, discussing our favourites, that sort of thing. Uh, So this week we're diving straight into basically creating our own antagonists for our own story. For the uh, fantasy world that we created in episode three. Yeah, so um, we have our own world already, we just need to populate it with some characters. And if you're interested in that world, um, I have made a World Anvil page for it. I'll put a link in the description and uh, you can check it out if you want to see what we came up with back then and also what we come up with today. Right. Yeah. And uh, this is going to be an ongoing thing for this world as well anyway. Yeah. Uh, so once we'll we'll po- be adding to it. Yeah. Once we've populated it with antagonists, then we're going to need to populate it with heroes and then other characters and so on and so forth. And this world is um, completely open source. It's uh, under a Creative Commons license. So if you like the world, if you'd like to build on it, if you'd like to write your own story set in it, you can do so completely freely if you like and do whatever you want with it. Okay. So with all that being said, um, I think it's time we got to uh, the game. Which we have all now lost. Hmm? Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll cut that. Yeah, you're going to end up cutting <laughs> that because you just sound so lame. <laughs> okay. That's so 2006. <laughs> anyway, we're going to play the... We're... <laughs> Sorry. We're going to start doing some story crafting. Yes. I thought about doing this the way that we usually do it. With just using the box, my homespun box of traits, and creating an antagonist through that. But then I thought about the the world building that we did before with the fantasy world that we created, mm-hmm. and we never pop, we never really populated it. We have species, we have traits, and we sort of mentioned ideas for uh, possible protagonists and things. But yeah, we mentioned some ideas, and we mentioned the thing about the we mentioned the thing about relics. Mm. With each, because this is a fantasy world of different species, and each one of them had a relic which was made for them by by an ancient race that was extinct, and so on and yeah. so forth. And we never really got too deep into it. Now, the thing is, is that as we've been discussing antagonists and villains and conflicts, we've been talking about sci-fi, we've been talking about contemporary set action films and stuff like this. We didn't really talk about fantasy. We did not. We didn't. There's a very good reason for that, why I didn't bring up any fantasy. And although you probably didn't think about it, probably the same for you. It's that fantasy villains, at least the really famous ones, Eusaurons, Voldemort, others, are not all that interesting. That's true. They're just you're, evil. Yeah, your typical high fantasy villain. There's, there's very interesting complex villains in fantasy. But your high fantasy villain... From my experience, does not tend to be all that complex. I mean, generally, your high fantasy villain is some ancient evil. Exactly. Spaug, if you're dealing with another another Tolkien one, is not exactly a complex villain. He is just a dragon that guards gold. It's also a children's book, so... It's also a children's book. Because, I mean, a lot of high fantasy is also designed for children. Our our first experiences of high fantasy tend to be sort of more based on, on children's stories so 
villains do not tend to be all that complex. And granted, there's a lot of high fantasy out there which has very, very complex and in-depth characters and sort of motivations. And that's fine. But the ones that kind of stick out into your head, I'm willing to bet are not necessarily all that complex at all. I don't want that for our fantasy world. I want a complex villain for our fantasy world. Or an antagonist. We've created this world so that we can do lots of different stuff into it. Yeah. So I think we should start by building an antagonist that is designed for this world that we can then create a story around later. So, to sum up very quickly, our fantasy world has um, six current species. Humans, merpeople, lizard people, shape changers, halflings, and vampires. We created a far, rather complex relationship between all these races. Mm-hmm. The most obvious for this being vampires feed on humans. Yes, and humans have gone from being... A civilization. A civilization to now being essentially... Horse lords and pagans is what we describe them as. Yeah. Yeah. And that is because that there was an ancient race of orcs that was... They created all of these relics. Um... Well, they, they created all of the relics because they were at war with, the hum- with humans. Yes. I think is what we said. And they... I believe so. And they, um, they gave relic to the vampires that gave them the the power to reproduce to reproduce to create more vampires by turning humans yes at which point the vampires just completely overtook overtook humanity yes and we kind of came up with this very rough story of the um relic being discovered among one of the other species i think we said the the merpeople or was it the halflings? halflings? It was the halflings had, yeah, because the halflings dug it up because uh, the halflings were originally the servants of the orcs and uh, they were, when it turned out that the vampires were basically turning on their masters, well, the, the orcs weren't their masters, but the people who gave them that power, the orcs um, took the relic and uh, wanted to hide it, so they gave it to the halflings and the halflings hid it in their mountain caves because these halflings are miners. Yes. <laughs> and artificers and... Uh, and we also came up with the complex, with the fairly complex idea that the halflings, the shape changers, the lizard people, and the mer people all kind of trade amongst each other as yeah. well. So, kind of a rough overview. So, an antagonist for this story, you know, your gut reaction is kind of go, oh well, the antagonist is probably a vampire. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, but you don't agree. Well, the thing is, is that I feel it's a bit obvious, but we can do something here where we can have what we were talking about with Pacific Rim and other stories, where we do have an antagonist, a greater antagonist, and a lesser antagonist. Yeah. Okay? So we'll go with the obvious one first, and we'll create an antagonist for the vampire. Um, Not for the vampires. An antagonist who is a vampire. Yes. Who is something towards the humans. I would argue that you would probably have... Because we have... The traits that we came up with the vampires, uh, with the vampire um, culture, was that they had a prosperous megacity, mm-hmm. but they were also travelling wayfarers. And we worked out that they were travelling wayfarers because that's how they kind of... Hunt. Hunt. They travel, they find humans like cattle, and then they drag them back. I would say um, that an antagonist who is a vampire would be somebody hell-bent on getting that relic back so that they can make more vampires. Would that be because they kind of feel like humans are starting to repopulate again and they're a bit afraid of them? Or is it more just a case of they just want more power? Well, if we want to be complex, I suppose it should be the former. But, 
that was my initial thought, at least, that um, that it would be somebody who wants that relic to come back into vampire hands so that they can uh, once again create more vampires. That makes sense. You know what I, who I want the antagonist, therefore, to be? A librarian. Okay. Because you'd have to have... Basically, if this... Re- I mean, this relic may be something that's fairly um, well-known amongst the vampire community because mm-hmm. it's how they kind of originally populated. But if our antagonist was a vampire who was hunting this, who became very learned in the lore mm-hmm. and has been trying to search it all their lives, they would have to be very well-educated. So, uh, not necessarily a librarian, someone, a historian... Or a scholar, a of, scholar some of some description. Someone who went to Vampire University. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Played by Idris Elba. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it would have to be... I think that the main... The, the kind of primary antagonist would be a scholarly vampire who has discovered this the location of this relic or sort of has heard enough about what the halflings found. To understand that it is significant mm. and that it is probably this relic that they have been searching for a long time has then gone to the sort of the elders or the political system of the vampires, which we haven't decided yet, but the leadership and sort of said, I, I think I found this. I, I, I'm almost certain I found this. And then he goes on this quest to find it, probably with backup, with the support of the rest of the vampire community who are basically sort of. So, yes, here, take money, take whatever you need, go find this thing, because we, we need to reproduce again. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you have this this scholarly vampire who is hell-bent to find it, and um, will not stop for anything, and will do anything to find it, because he knows its significance. And from his point of view, what he is trying to do is simply try and save his own people. And yes, he's a vampire, and yes, he feeds on human blood and all the rest of it. But as we kind of established when we first created this world, from a vampire's perspective, that's just what they do. Humans are their food source. Therefore, they need humans to live. And in so doing so, humans die, just in the same way that we eat meat and cows die. Yeah. Yeah. So he is, I can imagine him being hell-bent, but not cruel. He may even have a family. Do vampires have families in this world? Well, I suppose a vampire family would... They may have uh, romantic relationships, and then families may consist of people that they have turned. But we're talking about them reproducing, so if No, but that, that... I mean, that was the how they reproduced, though, wasn't it? Yes. By turning humans into vampires. Yes. So that is their reproduction. That means that their families are people that they have turned. Yes. So why do they need the relic again? Because they can't turn people anymore without the relic. Mm. So these so they are... haven't turned anyone in a very long time. So these are ancient family groups, really? Yeah. Mm. They've been living together for a thousand years and they're really sick of each other. <laughs> no, I don't see that. I think it would be... I, I think that these family groups would be pretty sacred to each other. Because, you know, it's a start of a new life at that point. And probably he was turned himself. I kind of like the idea that, like, rather than, like, the typical vampire thing of when you are turned, you still remember your entire human life. Mm -hmm. I kind of like the idea that when a vampire turns a human in this universe, they have no real recollection of their human existence. They, They, it feels like waking up to 
a completely new existence. Mm. And their memories of their human life may may be there, maybe for a few months, a year, but then they just fade away. I don't know. I, th- I, I like it better that they don't have any memories at all. Yeah, okay. I mean, that works too. Uh, I think... Because the, uh, uh, the tormented vampire stereotype, the uh, Louise of the... Of vampiric lore. Louis, angels, you know. They all... I mean, the primary reason why they are tormented is because they remember their human lives. Yeah, and so often it's a case of, oh... It's this humanity human. versus... Yeah, it's the whole thing of humanity versus uh, de- de- demonism. Demonness. Yeah, and the whole thing of um, human life is so much better because you feel and you live and it's... And you can walk in the sunlight. And you can walk in the sunlight and it's fleeting, but it's wonderful and garbage. <laughs> yeah, so... Not really. It's very, it's very clever, but it's overdone. Yeah, it, it, is, it is a bit overdone. And I think that in order to completely avoid that in this world, hmm. um, the simplest thing to do is have it so that vampires do not remember their human lives and don't care. Yeah, the, this life is the only one that they know. Mm-hmm. And... Again, they kind of consider humanity as just being as as just being cattle, and I suppose a weird mix between food source and surrogate womb. <laughs> Not quite sure how we do symbolism in this story, but yeah, that's uh, that's certainly an interesting one. Yeah, but yeah, no, it it, it would be, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, so I, I kind of like the idea of that being our central main antagonist for at least this first story that we're telling in this universe, because I kind of feel like this is open to a lot of stories. That basically, it's a, the, this scholar is hunting for the for the uh, for the relic, and I mean, we never talked about the protagonist for this story, and we're doing this a little bit backwards. But I suppose since our central story is around this relic, then we should start from the beginning, which would be the vampires hear about it and they want to find it. Yeah, I think. Um... I mean, we're not going to create them now, but I think that the protagonist should also be a vampire. One of them. Yeah, one of them. This, can a... have, this can be an ensemble cast. Yeah. That's our main antagonist, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Complex, in my mind, anyway. Mm-hmm. Thoughtful. Loving, I think, if we're talking about his family. Yeah. I don't see him as being particularly cruel or brutal. He might have moments of that when things start going against him which mm-hmm. undoubtedly they will, being an antagonist and an obstacle. Yeah. But for sure, I see him being more a... I'm trying to think of an example in pop culture, actually. And I'm struggling, and I like that. <laughs> because it means that I feel we're on the right track. I'd say so. But I'm sure there is something. I'm sure there is a character out there who's very similar to what we're describing, and if you can think of one, please let us know. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I'll think of one myself in a second, but no, I, I think that it's... The fact that I am struggling is a good sign that we've created a, a relatively original antagonist. We're creating something that's not at least completely overdone yeah. and isn't like a, a, a common trope, and that's cool. Okay, so I kind of feel that we have the um, our kind of primary antagonist for the story, and we did that all on our own. Yes, we didn't use the game at all. No, we didn't use the game, we didn't use any of my uh, my homespun tools. But um, as we've been talking, we've talked about having two antagonists in stories. Mm-hmm. We have a central antagonist and we have a lesser antagonist. So we're going to have several lesser antagonists in we're, the story. We're probably going to have several lesser antagonists. I kind of feel like we're probably going to end up with an antagonist for each of the different 
races, at least one. Probably not going to deal with that today. What we'll do at some point is that we'll actually go back to this story and we'll flesh out each and individual race properly. And we'll talk about the characters involved. And I'm going to say that we'll actually do that before we even select our protagonists for the story. But in terms of the story we are telling of this vampiric relic, this orcish vampiric relic, I kind of feel like we need a, a secondary antagonist who is central to the search for it. So we're going to come up with a different antagonist, and this time we are going to use the uh, prompt game. Yeah. I need a name for this. What are we doing here? So far, we just called it the game. Well, I've just called it the game, and then you made a joke about it, and now I don't want to call it the game anymore. I'll come I th- I'm cutting out the joke. <laughs> you shouldn't. <laughs> that was funny. No, it wasn't. No, you were lame, but it was funny. <laughs> So a sec- so we need a secondary antagonist, and for that we're going to use this system. Yeah. So I'm ignoring the box, because most of that is going to not be compatible with our story, because it's all muddled in with, with contemporary stuff and sci-fi and fantasy and all the rest of it. And I'm not going to use the most of the stuff that we used when we came up with the fantasy world, because, well, it's just going to add stuff on top of stuff that we've already got. However, we do have character traits from when we created our romance story. Mm-hmm. And we also have the threats that I came up with when we came up with the with the fantasy story. Yeah. So what I'm going to suggest is that we choose a threat first. So our secondary antagonist is going to also be a secondary threat other than the relic. Oh, that makes sense. And our scholar that is searching for it. And then we're going to select the character traits of this threat. So I'd like you just to kind of select a threat. Mad King. A little boring, but I'll go with it. I'm going to select another one too. Okay. Because I think what we'll do is that we'll create a sort of dual antagonist. Right. Okay. And then what I've got is Dark Trickster. Okay. Which, I mean, when I created these, I'm pretty sure I was thinking of Gauntero Dim at the time. Mm. From uh, The Witcher. Loki is also a Dark Trickster. And Loki. Yeah, Loki's a good one. So we have our two secondary antagonists, who Mad King and Dark Trickster would normally probably come across as a central antagonist. But our central antagonist is a scholar. scholar. See why I like this? Yes. So we need character traits for both of these. Keeping in mind that I have stuff in these character traits which sound quite nice. Yes. I've got kind, loyal, compassionate. But there's still got to be an antagonist, because that's the way I've designed it. So... If you would like to pick, pick three for your Mad King, and I'll pick three for my Dark Trickster. Okay, I'll just do them all at once. One. Okay. We've got Optimist, mm-hmm. Headstrong, and Fun. I like this. I like this Mad King. I'm thinking a... Uh... You know who I'm thinking of? Who? Cusco from um, Emperor's New Groove. <laughs> I'm sorry, you appear to have... Screwed up the Emperor's Groove. <laughs> or whatever the line is. I'm thinking kind of um, Little Prince John as well. As in uh, Men in Tights. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. He's not so optimistic, but he is kind of fun and headstrong. True. Well, I'm going to select three for my Dark Trickster now, and then we'll see what we're at. So, for the Dark Trickster, I have Arrogant. I have uh, Loyal. Interesting. And I have... Anxious. 
I'm thinking that these two these two are related, not not like related by blood related, but I think that the uh, dark trickster, the person the dark trickster is loyal to, is the Mad King. You think? I think that'll be fun. See, the thing is, I'm thinking about the dark trickster is that he must be loyal to something, but it might not necessarily be a person. Could be an ideal. Also. I'm looking at what we've got here, and I mean, we've not come up specifically with a magic system for this story, but we kind of get the sense that since these relics are so rare and so intensely magical, that magic is something that's possible but difficult, because the rest of the races hasn't really managed to create it as such. No, I, I, think, I think... They are magical, but they can't create magic, is the sense that I've got. So having a dark trickster instantly makes me think that he is a shape changer that makes sense and he is he could very well be i say he but i mean we haven't decided on gender here and honestly we have a a matriarchal system on the shape changers i see we do and a strict class system so i think he's very loyal to his species i think given that it is a strict class system and matriarchal i think it should be a man you think mm-hmm yeah, okay. The floating fishing village was where we had the, the, the matriarchs, and then it was ground dwellers on the ground that tended to be the men yes. ferrying stuff up to the... So, yeah, I mean, I, I think he'd probably be one of the ground dwellers. Yeah. But being a shape changer and having that ability, he's probably left his people to sort of... Maybe he's like a spy. Maybe he works for his people. So he, he does shape change amongst the other species to find out what they're doing. And this probably plays into the discovery of the relic. He's quite arrogant. That could just be just a, just a character trait. He's yeah. grown up arrogant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's a bit cocky. Anxious is probably the fact that he probably realises the significance of what he's discovered. Because I'm thinking that it's possibly this, this stark trickster who kind of clued in the vampires as to what the halflings have found. Makes sense. Yeah. So he is, he kind of recognizes the significance and he realizes that him and his people probably have a lot to gain by helping out the vampires in this. But they're a little bit wary about the fact that the vampires can reproduce and become bigger again. So he may be under orders from his matriarchs to do this, but he himself is rather trepidatious about it. Mm. And he is not particularly keen on the idea of working so close to the vampires. And I can kind of picture just the fact that he is described as a dark trickster. I kind of get the sense that his arrogance, the, the, the sort of the anxiousness sort of is quite buried under his personality. Yeah. His arrogance is kind of an overwhelming trait where he's like, um, you know, where he, where he sort of takes delight in becoming other things and pitching people against each other as part of his work, I guess. Maybe kind of in the end acts as kind of a sidekick to our scholarly vampire. Yeah, I was thinking that. Yeah? So that's that sorted. We can flesh that out a bit more some other time. So what about the Mad King? The Mad King doesn't technically, I mean, it doesn't have to be a king. It could be a queen. It could. I mean, I got Mad King, obviously, because I was thinking Lord of the Rings. Uh, sorry? Song of Ice and Fire? Yeah. But, I mean, I, I intended these to be somewhat flexible, so, you know. Think of it as mad, mad monarch. Mad monarch. <laughs> so see now I'm thinking about um, 
Blackadder's Elizabeth I. I would say she is crazy, optimistic, fun, and headstrong. <laughs> yeah, it kind of fits. But where would that fit in our world? Yeah, that's the thing. Because I mean, that was just a thought, but it doesn't have to be exactly like that, of course. It shouldn't be exactly like that. I mean, we have humans which are described as horse lords and pagans, but they're also a meritocracy. They wouldn't have kings. They and wouldn't queens. have kings and queens. A mer the mer people are patriarchal, but I mean that doesn't preclude the idea of a queen. No, I mean she would just not be the ruler. No, and they also are be the consort. They are rich traders in an ancient city. That could easily have a mark. Lizard people are f farmers and have a mountain castle. A castle could have a monarch. And the militaristic, which usually has a central figure at the head. Mm -hmm. Again, that's that kind of works. The shape changes we've already described as matriarchal and have a strict class system. That definitely could have a queen. Mm -hmm. Since we do already have an antagonist that is a shape changer, we could have another one. Yeah, and I, again, there comes that whole, um, the idea that I originally had, which is that these two antagonists are connected. And then, just to kind of cover all the bases, we have the halflings who are skilled craft makers and one with nature, which, no reason why they couldn't have a monarch, but I think it doesn't quite fit the description quite well. So, I think you're possibly right that it probably should be a shape changer. I think so. I think that this is a, this is a, a shape changer queen who is the one who's given the orders to the dark trickster to go off and help the vampires. I'd say maybe the dark tri trickster is sort of her favourite pet. I kind of like that idea. Yeah. The dark trickster is very loyal to her. Yes. But is obviously also the source of most of his anxiety. Yes. She would be. And I'm not thinking of him as being s like a simpering... Slimy. No, no, I mean either. Sycophant. He's he's more just a case of he has got himself into a position where he is able to be very good at what he does in terms of spying. Maybe he's just particularly adept at shape changing, so he can change into the other species and be convincing at it, which a lot of the other shape changers maybe aren't as good at because they're a little bit cut off. Um, they're a little more Odo, and he's a little bit more. Uh... Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, I know what you're getting at. But, um, yeah, so he's probably a little bit... Um, because of his ability, he is probably looked at favourably at court. Yes. And then, you know, he gets into quite a good position when he's home anyway. Maybe he even gets to live in the floating fishing village rather than down on the ground. Yes, that kind of makes sense to me. And, yeah, he's... He's in the Queen's harem. <laughs> No, I, no, that's a bit too much. That's a bit too much. I, I don't. Yeah, no. No, I agree. That's too much. We're not doing that. Yeah, um, but the the queen otherwise is fairly is is the one. Basically, the dark trickster is the one that basically found out about this relic. Probably went back to his people and just went, "This is what's going on," and the mad mad queen is the one that kind of went, "Ah, we can get in good with the vampires with this. Mm -hmm. Go tell them about it." And then at that point, this is where the, this is where the madness comes in because nobody in their right mind would think that. Yeah, because I mean, we kind of established that there's, a, there's kind of a rich trade culture between the um, the the sort of outer four races: the mer people, the lizard people, the shape changers, and the halflings. They have a very rich trading culture, 
But the vampires are kind of on the, the peripheries. And they do kind of trade. That's part of what the traveling wayfarers do as well. Mm-hmm. They sort of go out and they trade and they get, they take stuff back, probably in quite large caravans and such. Yeah. But the, they, they're kind of still distant from the other races. And the other races like it that way. Yeah. Because although the vampires kind of see themselves as being rather superior, and we kind of even have that as being they are both, the vampires are both prejudiced and telepathic. Yes. Is two traits we came up with them. So they see themselves as being a part of the rest of them. And the rest of the races just find vampires rather distasteful. Yes. Although vampires specifically feed on humans and not on the other races. Yes. So they're not a threat in that sense to no, the other races, especially not given that they have lost their ability to reproduce with the relic. Yeah, and the rest of the races probably aren't that too fond of humans either. They just kind of see humans the same way that's, you know, the, the same way that, say, in the news day you get these terrible pieces about refugees and immigrant, immigra- immigrants from poorer parts of the world and so on and so forth. It, it's sort of that, that distant, oh, I feel sorry for them, but I'd rather they were over there. It's like the that. people, like the people of Ratai and Kingdom Come Deliverance, feel very sorry for the Scarlet's refugees, but they just caused trouble. Put them somewhere else. Yes, I'm not quite sure many people will get that reference in that case. Possibly not, but the ones who do will get what I'm saying. Yeah, but yeah, humans are seen as, as sort of something to be pitied, but not really endured much. Yeah, and the other four races in between, kind of see themselves as being you know they have their own cultures and they don't really cross all that much but they're more happy to exist amongst themselves mm-hmm. but this mad queen is like oh we can get in good with the vampires maybe we can increase trade we can we can sort of um we can um be on their good side yeah when they inevitably find this relic anyway and then she is the one that basically sends our dark trickster out to go to the vampires, tell them what he's discovered, help them as much as he can, and... Um, and essentially be the scholar's sidekick. Yeah. Now, I would say that the dark trickster, I kind of feel, could potentially be an anti-hero, but I kind of also feel like that is something to cover when we cover anti-heroes. Yeah, and I mean, um, in that case, I would say that he is an antagonist turned anti-hero. Maybe. Maybe. I, I'm, the thing is, is that I kind of feel like we need more of this story fleshed out before we decide that. That's true. That's a good point. Because I also quite like the idea of this dark trickster as uh, being like he is like, I, like he is described as a dark trickster, which makes me feel like he is also... Even though he is loyal to his queen... And uh, all of that, he has its own. He has his own agenda. No, I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking that he, he is good at his job because he is somewhat a little bit sadistic. Not not blatantly, ha ha, kill everybody. I love this kind of sadistic. Just that little bit of, you know, if he stabs someone in the back, he just gets that little twinge of, ooh, just. Just a little, just a little bit, of just a little bit, just a little bit of sadism in him, and he's not unfeeling about it. But at the same time, he kind of justifies it with, you know, it's just my job. Yeah, he's technically, um, he's been an assassin as well, possibly, and he is 
he is generally one of those people that, because, again, arrogant, loves what he does, and he doesn't quite face up to why he loves what he does. Because mm. he loves what he does because he because it gives him a bit of a thrill, mm. regardless of whether he's sort of spying and, and sort of being all sneakety-sneak. But he doesn't admit to that. Yeah, he doesn't admit to it. And, I mean, he probably, like, he, he thinks... As far as he's concerned, he thinks of like the the way the vampires treat the humans, and just like the rest of the races, he's he's a little bit about it. He's mm. a little bit disgusted because he doesn't like the the sort of thought of it in that regard. Yeah. But when it comes to being on an equal footing, of you know, a, a proper fight, he'll still be the one who makes sure he's not in the proper fight and is instead going to come up with you with a with a, with a knife from behind. So, yeah, I think we've got quite a bit there. Mm-hmm. We have uh, three antagonists for our world. And we actually kind of have the beginning of the story. Yeah, I'd say so. Because we have this relic, which we can flesh out further in the story. Uh, we have our dark trickster spy, who learns about the halflings uncovering it. Yes. Who takes the news to his, his uh, queen, mm-hmm. who... Turns around and says, ah, that's very interesting. Go tell the vampires about it. Yeah. It's their relic. They deserve it. We can get in good with them. Mm-hmm. And he's probably all, being the, the mad queen, is probably a little bit more, um, less thinking and more, <laughs> a little bit about the whole thing. <laughs> um, so the Dark Tricks then goes to the vampires and says, I have found... Anxiously. I've found information about this relic that you have been searching for for centuries. And the vampires pass this on to their, their lead scholar on, the, uh, on this relic, mm-hmm. who's been studying it probably for maybe as long as it's been missing, and has been trying to track it down. Mm-hmm. And he finds this, like maybe the vampires at first are a little bit skeptical, but he sort of takes in what the tricks tells him and is like, oh, wait, no, that, that, that follows what I've learnt. From my studies. This this must be the relic. So he goes off on a search. And with the backing of the, the vampire um, leadership. Mm-hmm. He sort of goes off on uh, on this quest. With the dark trickster. In tow. Yes. To find the relic. And bring it back to the vampires. At which point. We need to come up with some protagonists. The next time we cover this. Which might not be straight away. No I think it's better to space it out a bit. Yeah. Uh, we'll cover other things, uh, but we'll sort of keep track of what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. And we'll come back to this at some point and uh, flesh it out even more. Yes. So, if you've liked the episode, uh, please pass us a comment on um, at First Draft C at, um, on um, Twitter or at First Draft Collective on Facebook. Um, drop us a comment, like us, follow us through your um, podcast, podcast app of choice. App of choice yeah. yeah. Um, and even if you don't like it, let us know why. Yeah, let us know why. Like, a lot of people do not comment on why they don't like things, even though it's the internet, which seems very strange to me. But mm. when they listen to something, they don't like it, they, they'll just discard it. I prefer it if you don't do that, because uh, we are relatively new at this, and we just like to know what you think, yeah. um, and so that we can fix it. And if you like the idea of what we're doing, of creating this, but we're not quite what you want, then let us know again why, and we'll do other things. We'll we'll sort of change up what we do and and do different things. And uh, also, if you want to get a hold of me directly, I am uh, at Thorn Wild. No, at Thorn underscore Wild with an e at the end. Again on, on Twitter. Twitter. And I'm also on Facebook. You can just 
Google or look up um, Thorn Wild. You'll find me. So we'll uh, we'll take notes of this and we'll um, hope to have you join us the next time. Goodbye. Bye.